Well, amen. What a wonderful morning it has been already. Before I begin, I want to mention one more time, please be here next week. And if you cannot be here, tune in online as we speak about life. I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word as we continue now in part two of this new sermon series as we walk through the letter to the Galatian churches. Last week, we talked about Paul defending his apostleship. This week, we are going on to the issue at hand, and it's dealing with wolves. Dealing with wolves. So, so this morning's message is called Wolfology 101. Wolfology 101. I, my daughter asked last night, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, Wolfology. And she said, what's that about? I said, I kind of made the word up, I think. I don't know that I've heard it before, but it's about wolves. And she said, what does that have to do with the Bible? <laughs> I said, well, actually, a lot. So if you would take your Bible and turn to the letter to the Galatians. Just a little um, thing to note this morning that's a fun thing. Uh, the history of this pulpit right here um, and Dr. Hockham, the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Tupelo in the early part of the 20th century, this was his pulpit. And I have perceived now in two months, it will be, I've been the pastor here for eight years, and I have perceived either Dr. Hockham did not use notes or his Bible was very small. And uh, so because of that, while in Louisville this week, I bought a smaller Bible. <laughs> so I'm excited to break this one in this morning. But certainly a humbling thing every Sunday to stand behind such a desk um, that has a history as it does. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I want to begin with our main statement, and then I will read the text. Here's our main statement. There are wolves in the world. There are wolves in the world. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I'm using it as a metaphor as the New Testament does. But wolves are, by definition, predators. There are predators in the world that are seeking to devour. Now, ultimately, the ultimate predator is not flesh and blood. We know from Ephesians 6 that the ultimate predator is he who uh, is uh, the powers of darkness, John 10, 10. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to its fullest, but that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That there is an ultimate predator opposed to God, which empowers the powers of darkness to prey upon God's sheep. So in the New Testament, you have a metaphor used over and over again to refer to God's people, and he calls them his sheep. And God has sent shepherds to his sheep to care for the sheep. But there are wolves. Wolves are real. And this is why Paul is writing this letter. Because we're going to see in a moment these churches which have been started by Paul have been infiltrated by wolves and it has caused problems amongst the sheep and the sheep have not been able to recognize that the one posing as their shepherd 
is actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. And this is why the letter to the Galatian churches has been written. Let me begin reading chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can put wolves. And want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. There are wolves in this world. So let's move into our outline this morning. First is Paul's astonishment teaches us several things about doctrinal drift in churches. Paul's astonishment to the Galatian churches teaches us several things about doctrinal drift in churches. Well, what is doctrinal drift? It is drifting away from orthodox understanding, meaning Paul makes clear there is one gospel. And what happens so often is if we drift away essentially from the word of God, even if it starts just a little bit, over time, what we believe and what the gospel actually is can become quite separate. Paul is astonished in Galatia because they essentially just started this church and just got saved not too long ago. And Paul is astonished as if almost to say, listen, already? Already we're, we're drifting into error? And this is why he writes this letter, because he realizes the drifting has not been accidental. It has been intentional, because there are those among the church that seek to trouble the flock of God. So Paul's astonishment teaches us several things about doctrinal drift in churches. First, it does not matter who started or planted your church. It does not matter who started or planted your church. We have a rich history here at First Baptist Church of Tupelo. We became a church in 1850. We have been at this property since 1861. There have been many godly men and women through the years and the decades here faithfully pursuing Christ. We have a wonderful and rich history, but that is no guarantee that we cannot experience doctrinal drift. The church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, were started by St. Paul. It does not matter who started your church. Paul likely started many of the churches in Galatia. If I could turn your attention to the screen this morning. So... These are Paul's missionary journeys. If you'll look at the red line, the missionary journeys began from the church in Antioch over here. 
But if you'll look at the, the red line up there close to Derby, you have Derby and Lystra. And if you see Galatia up there, the churches of Galatia would have been spread out, which this is modern day Turkey, they would have been spread out through Asia Minor. And so likely, even though there's mixed opinions on this, it seems to be that the majority of evangelical scholarship believes that these churches in Galatia were started by Paul on his first missionary journey. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know for sure is that Paul had a hand in beginning these churches. So likely on his first missionary journey, Paul began these churches, and then those churches began to plant other churches, and those churches planted other churches. And so now you have a miniature network, shall we say almost a denomination of churches throughout Galatia, all based on the work that Paul started in Derbra, Lystra, and Iconium. So these churches of Galatia are now networked together and are experiencing a doctrinal drift. So this helps us understand why Paul is so concerned. This is not just one church. To borrow a modern word, this is almost a denomination of churches. So we learn from this that it doesn't matter who started or planted your church, and I will say this, it doesn't matter who started or planted your denomination either. It is possible, that's not going to be on the screen, but it is possible um, that a church or a denomination can experience doctrinal drift because these churches were started by St. Paul himself. It does not matter what denomination or network to which your church belongs. Galatians is proof that no matter if it's been a long time or a short time from the ministry of the apostles, it is possible to drift from the truth. And this is why Paul has written his letter. So Paul's words about the gospel must ring true in our ears. Paul's words about the gospel must ring true in our ears. Look back in verse number six. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul's words about the gospel here in Galatians must ring true in our ears. This won't be in your notes. Here's what you need to know. Paul is persuaded there is only one gospel. There is only one. We're going to speak in a minute that you can't add to it and you can't take away from it. And Paul is not ashamed of it. We'll get into in a few weeks likely why these doctrinal drifts were taking place. It was likely to satisfy the Jewish tradition in these churches, to satisfy the, the, the culture of the time, so to speak. But Paul reminds us in Romans 1.16, this is one of my good friend Stanley Williams' favorite verses, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is what Paul says everywhere he goes. This is the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not budging on it. This is the gospel, and it has been once and for all delivered to us. John 14, 6 says this. 
Jesus said to him, speaking to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there you have Jesus saying exactly and essentially the same thing that Paul says. There is one gospel. There is not another way. There is one gospel, and therefore, that one gospel must be preserved. We must hold to it, because there's not another one. Friends, if you add to the gospel, it ceases to be gospel. Anytime you say, well, what you need to do is you need to, for instance, turn from your sins and trust Christ believing that God has raised him from the dead, that you believe that Jesus is the Lord, and you call upon him for salvation. That was a long explanation. To be a Christian is simply calling upon the name of the Lord, acknowledging your need and saying, Lord, I need you come into my life. Whatever the gospel is, it has to be as simple as what St. Dismas did, who is named by the Catholic Church as the thief crucified next to Christ, where he simply said, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Anything that we add to that message distorts the gospel, and it makes it not the gospel. For instance, if we say, well, you must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and keep the commandments, or you must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, or you must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and be a church member, you must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and not be an idiot. You must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and be a conservative. No, if you add to it, it ceases to be the gospel. And what was happening is that there were troublers, wolves, who had come into the church of God in Galatia, and they were saying this, what Paul has said is great. It's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? We should all trust Jesus. But there's a few other things as well. And maybe Paul forgot to tell you these things. Dr. Timothy George, in his new American commentary on Galatians, some of you know Dr. George is the founder of Beeson Theological Seminary uh, there in Birmingham, uh, associated with Samford University. Reading Dr. George, he says this, Paul was unsparing in his condemnation of these perverters and seducers of God's flock. They doubtless saw things quite differently. If, as seems likely, they had strong connections to those Judean Christians who precipitated a similar crisis in the church at Antioch. For instance, in Acts 15, 1 through 4. Acts 15, 1 through 4 says this. But some men came from, down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So in Acts 15, what has happened is these Judaizers have come into the churches, which now contain Gentiles. And they are saying, listen, trusting Christ is wonderful, 
But if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, you must keep the laws and the customs of Moses. Therefore, men, you must be circumcised. Just got a lot harder to give an invitation, didn't it? Um, but in Galatia, that's what was troubling them. So Dr. George goes on here, and he says, we might summarize the message of these wolves in Galatia. Perhaps they wrote a letter to Galatia that read this. Dear brothers of Galatia, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have heard how through the ministry of Brother Paul you have been converted from the worship of dumb idols to serve the true and living God of Israel. We are glad you have made such a good beginning, but we are afraid that there are some very important things about the gospel that Paul has admitted to tell you. We ourselves come from the church at Jerusalem, which is directed by the very apostles Jesus called and ordained. Peter, though, is an upstart. While he never even knew Jesus, oh, excuse me, Paul, though, is an upstart. While he never even knew Jesus while he was on the earth, he certainly never was commissioned by him as an apostle. True, Paul did visit Jerusalem after he stopped persecuting us. And there he learned the ABCs of the Christian faith from the true apostles. But the message and how he preaches it bears really no resemblance to theirs. I don't imagine he told you everything about circumcision. Why, this is the very way that God has made it possible for you Gentiles to become a part of the new Israel. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Circumcision is just as important as baptism. Nay, more important, for it will introduce you into a higher plane of Christian living. If you will observe this holy ordinance of law, God will be pleased with you. We are just now forming a new association of law-observant churches, and we would love for Galatia to be represented. We are the true Christians. Jesus is our example, pleased the Father by fulfilling the law, so now can you. Maybe that was the letter that they received. Friends, Paul points out here, and this is why he is so angry. If you add to the gospel, you take away from the essence of its trueness. Also, if you take away from the gospel, it is also not the gospel. That's not the issue at hand here, but the issue at hand was adding to the gospel. But it is also true in our times that if you were to take away from the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. John chapter 20 and verse number 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 3.16, you know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's been two conversations that I have had with pastors of other denominations in my 20-plus years of experience that I will not soon forget. Speaking with one gentleman, we got to talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he confided in me. He said, in our church, we are not dogmatic about the physical resurrection of Jesus because we find that that doctrine is troublesome 
for our modern hearers. That means they have forsaken the gospel. Because if Jesus is in the ground somewhere, none of this book is true. You cannot take away from the gospel. I talked to someone recently, and um, it's been the past few years recently, and he said, you know what, we believe the gospel, but we're just not real big on pushing the message of grace. Then what do you think the gospel is? Friends, if you take away from the essence of what it is, it ceases to be the gospel. And this is why I say Paul's words about the gospel must ring true in our ears. Paul literally comes out of the gate saying, I'm astonished. This is the only letter in the New Testament where he comes out swinging. There's no sweet words of I'm praying for you and I love you and tell hi to mama and them. No, it is straight out of the gate. What are y'all thinking? This is how serious abandoning the gospel is. Doctrinal drifts in the gospel, by the way, are not organic. Let's keep going. Doctrinal drifts, excuse me. Doctrinal drifts in the gospel are not organic. They are organized by wolves. Doctrinal drifts in the gospel are not organic. They are organized by wolves. Look down in verse number seven. It says, not that there is another one, referring to the gospel, but there are some who trouble you. What does this mean? This means that even at the beginning of the church, there were some who sought to infiltrate the flock of God and for reasons owned only to, only to themselves and working their own agendas they brought these destructive teachings into the church. These are called wolves. Doctrinal drifts in the gospel are driven by wolves. And in the New Testament, a wolf is someone who pretends not to be a sheep, but someone who pretends to be a shepherd. A wolf is someone who infiltrates the flock of God, a wolf in sheep's clothing, Someone who comes in and rather than bringing harmony is bringing destruction. They are bringing with them hidden agendas. You say, Matt, this is so conspiratorial. Well, then I guess Jesus is a conspiracy theorist because look what he says in Matthew chapter 7. Because of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs, fig, figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits." There are wolves that will enter, have entered, and in the future enter the flock of God working their own agenda. And this is what Paul is dealing with. You see, wolves pushing doctrinal drifts rarely begin a new work. This is such a key statement. 
Wolves pushing doctrinal drift rarely begin a new work. They hijack a church or a work that's already been started. They do it all the time. Acts 20, 29. Notice what Paul says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wolves pushing doctrinal drifts rarely begin a new work. They hijack the work of others. And the reason they don't begin new workers is you cannot build a new work on a lie. Wolves lie. Wolves lie. Wolves lie. In Acts 15, 20 through 24, this is an amazing statement. We read about Acts 15 earlier. Remember, Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem to make the report that, hey, there are some troublemakers that you, James, and the church of Jerusalem have sent into the churches of Galatia. You have sent them, and now they are causing trouble among us because they're saying you must be circumcised to be saved. And here is an amazing statement which takes place, and I hope you will catch it. These are the words of James. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Listen to this letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Sicilia, greetings, since we have heard some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds. Look at the last statement. Although we gave them no instructions. What do we learn now in Galatia? These men who said, well, the apostles sent us. The men that were trained by Jesus sent us. St. James says, no, we didn't. Wolves lie. They lie. And you spot a wolf by his fruit. And also, wolves can be hard to spot. Wolves can be hard to spot in the church of the living God. But we do have a few descriptions. Matthew 7, 20, we've already mentioned that. You can recognize a wolf how? By not the message, because it's so worth They know how to craft the message where it sounds just close enough to the real thing. But you recognize them not by the message, but by the fruit. Wolves appeal to authority that you do not have. They will, here's what wolves do. They will appeal to authority that you do not have. Meaning, because of who I am, because of my study, because of my training, because of my network, I know what needs to be done here, and we cannot trust your judgment. You need to follow me because I am a shepherd. That's how a wolf will talk. Also, wolves say they are sinners but perceive themselves as better than you. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, talks about this religious leader in this parable. It says, and he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up from the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, for I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can recognize a wolf because wolves emphasize your sin while ignoring their own. Also, here's another one. Wolves are intent to tear down what true shepherds have built. Wolves are intent to tear down what true shepherds have built. These troublers, troublers know that Paul has built this work of God and they are intent for their own purposes to tear it down. Also, here's another thing. Wolves hate shepherds. Wolves hate shepherds. They hate Paul. We're going to find all throughout the letter of Galatia, letter to the Galatia, Galatian churches, that they are attacking Paul, his credibility. They're trying to discredit him, say he's not an apostle. Why? Because not only do wolves lie, they hate shepherds. And wolves want you to be dependent upon them. They want you to be dependent upon them. For the sake of time, let's keep going. Shepherds love the sheep. Oh, but wolves do too. Shepherds love the sheep, but wolves do too. And it's not the same kind of love. Also, wolves don't admit that they're wrong. They turn the blame on you. They turn blame on you. This is another way that we can recognize the fruits of wolves. Also, wolves don't repent. What does that mean? They don't ever say, I was wrong. But they're very persuaded everybody else needs to repent. It's another fruit that a wolf bears. Also, sometimes a shepherd can act like a wolf. Sometimes a shepherd can act like a wolf and expect true wolves to pounce on him if he ever does. It is true. It is true that their shepherds can make foolish decisions and act very wolf-like. You need to look no further than the greatest king in the Old Testament, King David. His wolf-like behavior caused the unnecessary murder of a husband, an adulterous affair with his wife, a civil war in his kingdom. That's King David. But at the end of it all, David is called a shepherd. But even a true shepherd can act like a wolf. And when you read David's story, the true wolves in that story pounce on the true shepherd in his moments of wolfness. Also, here's another one. Don't mistake an immature shepherd for a wolf. Don't mistake an immature shepherd for a wolf. I, uh, a few months ago, found on my hard drive a sermon that I had preached in 2005. Uh, I identified two heresies and one, let's call it heterodoxy, and also just a really arrogant tone in the whole message. So I deleted it. <laughs> <laughs> and I look back and go, Good gracious, what was I thinking? 
because in my heart I want to be a true shepherd. There was um, a man in ministry when I was in Knoxville. There was a man in ministry that just drove me crazy. He was not a member of our church. He was not a pastor in our church. I was a youth pastor. He was pastoring another church in Knoxville. And he had brought a lot of change to the church. And my perception was that he was not exercising the heart of a shepherd. And he was driving the sheep rather than leading them. And he just bothered me. He got under my skin. I didn't like him. I didn't want to pray for him, any of that stuff. And I was so bothered by what I perceived was his arrogance. And then one time in prayer, the Lord reminded me that it takes one to know one. And um, I was led to Luke chapter 9 and verse 54. And I was reminded of James and John. James and John, when Jesus was rejected at the edge of the Samaritan village, and it said, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's send the pulpit committee after those guys, right? The guys wanting to call fire down from heaven. And Jesus says, no, what are you talking about? A few years later, while reading 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, which is, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It occurred to me, and don't miss this, the same John that wrote those tender words. My little children. Can't get any more tender than that. I write these things to you so that you wouldn't sin, but you know what? If you do, it's okay. Jesus has forgiven you, loves you, and accepts you. That's so tender, I can hard, please be my pastor. Yes, that's the same guy that wanted to call a nuclear strike on Samaria. What happened? Jesus. Jesus. Because there's about 40 years that separate Luke 9 from John 2. And Jesus can grow his immature shepherds into shepherds who imitate the real one. I want to say one more thing about wolves, and we'll follow you 101, is that we don't integrate wolves into the Lord's flock. We call them out to drive them out. This is what Paul is doing in Galatia. He is mincing no words. In fact, I want to draw your attention to verse number 9. Look at the phrase just before it. Actually, let's begin in verse 8, because I don't know that you're feeling what he says. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as I have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you've already received, let him be accursed. Say, Brother Matt, what does that mean? Well, it's poetic language, which means this. And I'm not trying to be crude. I'm using this religiously. The poetic language here, softened for our English ears, means this in the original. If anyone preaches a gospel different than the one you receive, God damn that man. That's exactly what Paul says. And I mean this in the religious sense. Not in some crude cursing sense. 
Paul sees this error as literally putting the church in danger of hell itself. And he calls it out. He does not coddle wolves. He says that is wrong, that is immoral, and it is going to lead the church of God away. And my desire, if anyone is doing that, he's saying that man needs to go to hell. That is really strong language. I remember as a kid, I only heard my granddaddy say one ugly word my entire life. And it was the day that we took the golf cart down into the swamp. <laughs> and we never did that again. <laughs> My grandfather did not have a foul mouth. And when out it came, I knew immediately, yes, sir, I understand. Paul does not have a foul mouth. He is not cursing for emphasis. He is cursing for reality because this is how dangerous this error is. We must preach the gospel, believe the gospel, expose any attempts to distort the gospel, and this is what we observe here in Paul. Amen. If I was a better Christian, I wouldn't watch movies, but I do. And one of my favorite movies, and I've probably seen it the most on TV, so I'm sure there's worse content in it, so don't judge me too harshly. Um, but there's a movie that came out in the 90s called Tombstone, and I, I love it. It's the story of Wyatt Earp, and at the end of the movie, this gang that he's run roughshod over the town is causing all of this trouble, and he, they finally think they have run Wyatt Earp and his family out of town. And they see him board the train, and they think they're free, and they're laughing and giggling, and all of a sudden he shoots the shotgun. Wyatt Earp's there. He puts his head, or his foot on the other guy's head, and he points that, um, oh, what? peacemaker that big six shooter at that guy's head and he said you tell him that I'm coming and you tell him that I know y'all don't play spiritual on me I know y'all know that movie <laughs> he says you tell him that hell's coming with me because we're going to put an end to this evil now we don't bring the forces of hell but Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead. And if any one of us is teaching a false gospel, hell's not coming with him. Heaven is. And when you read Revelation 19, the forces of heaven followed by a man on a white horse with a name tattooed on his thigh that only he knows is scarier than anything hell has to offer. Let us be faithful to the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, your grace, your love, your tenderness for us, and that, Lord, what I love most about this passage is that if we push the wrong button on Jesus, we can see grizzly bear because you do not want your sheep to be harmed. And that's what love is. Love says, you will not harm my children. 
it steps in the way and says, no further. Lord, I thank you, not just for the grace that loves us, but a grace that protects us and that, Lord, you have started your church and will finish the good work. And in your good time, you do come and will come to judge the quick and the dead. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen.